Welcome to another episode of the Gay Archive Show, where we explore gay history one bar at a time. I'm your host, Art Smith, and today our guest is club kid, fashion designer, and journalist, Ernie Glam. Welcome to the show, Ernie. Thank you. It's great to have you here. I'm kind of excited to hear about uh, your long history in the in the New York City club scene. Um, I'm happy to talk about it. It's always a pleasure reminiscing about the past and celebrating the present. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been involved. Um, you were involved in, I guess, what would be tagged as the original club kid scene in New York back in the uh, in the 80s and 90s when the club kid scene was really exploding and everybody was kind of hearing about it and, you know, was making waves. That's right. I mean, I found, I kind of found out about it or I must have read about it or I, to tell you the truth, it was already happening when I started hearing about it. And uh, I just heard that there were these really cool parties in the basement of the tunnel. And that was around 87, I guess. And, uh, and at the time, I was a student at, at Fashion Institute of Technology, and I would take night classes there. So ever so conveniently, one of the big parties that I started going to at the tunnel was Larry T's Celebrity Club. And I, it happened to occur on the same night that I had an evening class at FIT. So my class would be over at 10, and then I would just walk over to the tunnel because uh, FIT is on 27th Street, and so is the tunnel. So it was great. I would just go right after school. Yeah, nobody would look at you twice at FIT for wearing clubwear to to classrooms. No, they wouldn't. Although usually I would come to uh, FIT from work and my day job where it was kind of a, you know, it wasn't like a flamboyant job. So I'd be wearing like day wear or office wear. And then I would usually have a backpack. So around 10 o'clock when class is over, I would go in the bathroom and change into my club outfit and put on makeup in the mirrors at, in the bathrooms at FIT. So uh, yeah, I would enter school dressed really plain and leave really flamboyantly. So tell me about the tunnel. What was the space like itself? What was the bar like? Uh, well, it was, it, when you say bar, like to me, there's a distinction between a bar and a nightclub. Uh, to me, a bar is a place where that serves drinks and people, and there's no dancing. Uh, and whereas a nightclub, there are multiple, there could be multiple rooms, multiple bars, and there is dancing or there is a dance floor. So the tunnel was a nightclub that had multiple dance floors. And uh, you would go, it, w- it was built inside a early 20th century building that was essentially a garage for trains so before there were bridges or tunnels from new jersey into new york city the trains would come across the river in barges and then they would be unloaded onto train tracks on the uh, edge of the river and then they would be moved into these large where long warehouses that were the lengths of trains where they would be kept for storage and for safety and uh, so that's what the tunnel was. And the the brilliance of the people who designed the club is that they kept the railroad tracks in part of the club so that uh, you could you could see where the tracks were. And it was really cool. Like it really felt like you were inside a train tunnel. So that was the top floor. And then downstairs, 
there was another level where apparently they kept more trains, but they took the tracks out of there. And that's where the basement was. And that's where Larry T's party was. It was a very, it wasn't a very large area, like probably not more than uh, 200 people could fit down there, but it was enough to get a scene going. And with an edgy scene, like, you know, the club kid concept, it was also an unconventional space. You had an unconventional event happening in an unconventional space. So that right. could probably added to, well, the whole, yeah. <laughs> you know, the whole feeling of it because, you know, typically you don't think about opening a bar or a nightclub or a restaurant inside a train tunnel. I mean, that's, you know, that's not the norm. Well, cool, rich people do think of things like that. So, yeah, but it's not the norm. And uh, thankfully, they did that because it was it was amazing. Uh, the the music that was played in that room, Larry T mostly played house music. You have to recall that in 1987, that was the the uh, epiphany or the apogee of the house music uh, scene, and that was the really huge, cool sound at the time. So that's what he mostly played. And he was good at playing it and it was fun. And then the people that were there were mostly college kids from FIT, from Parsons School of Design, from School of Visual Arts, and, and then other, you know, scenesters or freaky people. It was a very young scene. And uh, there was often there was an open bar from 10 to 11. So by 11 or 1130, everybody was really drunk <laughs> and, uh, just being crazy and wild. So it was basically a room full of really young, really drunk people wearing flamboyant clothes. Now I've already interviewed Larry T and we talked a little bit about celebrity club and actually celebrity club had its roots in Atlanta. Uh, when Larry T was in Atlanta, one of the clubs that he was involved with uh, promoting and DJing at and throwing parties was also called the celebrity club. Um, and my understanding from one of the other um, founders of that original Atlanta Celebrity Club is that they didn't know what they were going to call it. And the guy, they were originally down the street in a separate building that had these signs outside that was called the Nightery Club, N-I-T-E-R-Y. And there were two of those signs outside the club. And when they sold that space or repurposed it, he moved them down a couple blocks to another space. And they didn't have a budget for a sign. So they took the two sets of letters for Nightery Club and said, what can we make out of that? And they made the word celebrity. <laughs> and so that's supposedly how that name came about. And then, of course, he carried that on up to New York. How long did the, um, did the tunnel club kid scene last? How long was that bar a popular part of the scene? Uh, I, it's hard my memory of that time period is kind of fuzzy at this point because it really was a long time ago at this point. Uh, but I believe it lasted. I remember going to the tunnel for at least two years or maybe a year and a half. So I started going there in 87. And so for, for most of 87 and most of 88, I believe I went to, uh, the, to the tunnel and the celebrity club. And, uh, and then after that, I think it like around 89 is when the, the club kid scene moved to the world. How did the world compare to the tunnel? What was the world like? The world was, um, well, the one big difference was that the tunnel was in the, 
in West Chelsea. And at that time, there were no residents. It wasn't be, this was the time period before Chelsea had become really cool and hip. And it, New York City in general was not as crowded as it is today. So it, that area was completely abandoned. When, when I would walk to the tunnel, it would just be emptiness. Like you'd walk by all these factories and warehouses and there was nobody on the street and no cars other than, you know, the only people on the street might be prostitutes. And then the only cars would be like guys driving around trying to pick up the prostitutes because on 28th street was a big prostitute area. So it was around the corner from the tunnel, Uh, but it wasn't crowded. And then in the, where the world was, was in this really scary part of the lower East side where that was not gentrified and you didn't necessarily feel safe walking around there. And there were a lot of people on the street, but they were like very unsavory, threatening people. And then if you were walking in drag or in some crazy flamboyant outfit, you didn't, you weren't necessarily sure that you'd make it past a group of homeboys who wouldn't start a fight with you or like start harassing you. So that's what the world was like. I didn't actually like that location. The club itself was an old uh, social hall from early 20th century or maybe the late 19th century. And it was a ballroom and uh, it had multiple floors and the scary, I remember one of the scary things about it was on the lower floor, whenever it was really crowded on the main dance floor, which was the upstairs, you'd see the ceiling kind of vibrate, move up and down. (laughs) And I just always felt like it was a matter of time before the floor would just collapse and everybody would come, you know, plunging to the ground floor. Um, But it was a cool space. And uh, the thing that I liked about it is that they created a side club to the world that was called the it club, which is where all the club kids hung out. And it was a very small space and it was perfect for uh, the club kids because there were enough of us to occupy the space and not have it seem empty. And we could have our own fun parties there and not let all the, you know, bridge and tunnel people in. And then if we wanted to go out into the main part of the club to, to do whatever, you know, flirt with whoever, or just interact with other people, we could. It was cool. Mm -hmm. Did the change in venue from tunnel to the world and the change in location geographically, did those elements have an impact on the exposure of the club kid scene and attracting more people or different type of people to the group? Or did it basically say, stay the same people that were going to, you know, the tunnel kind of migrated over to the world? Uh, there was a lot of migration. Uh, you have to understand that in the club kids scene, there were there was a lot of turnover. So every two or three years, there would be a whole new set of club kids. Because, and the reason for that is because a lot of the club kids were, as I said earlier, college students, and a lot of them were in college. So, and once they graduated from college, they would often move away from New York and go back to wherever they came from. So you would see club kids and then they would and then they would be gone because they would have moved back to wherever uh if they decided not to stay in new york so um so there was a change in the club kids that were in uh at the world and but also because by that point you know other club kids in other states had started hearing about like this club kid scene or they had read about it in magazines like details or they might have seen that big new york magazine where the club kids were on the cover so they started moving to New York. So uh, it was different in that respect that there were all these new club kids that had come and that were at the world. And so, um, so yeah, it was, it was a different feeling. Um, 
it, the music was also slightly different because by 1989, Acid House had become really popular. And that was a very uh, popular form of music at the world. Uh, I remember hearing it a lot at the It Club. And I even Larry T would play it uh, when the Celebrity Club migrated to the world. Uh, I remember him playing it. So the soundtrack was a little different. Uh, the arrival of Acid House created... Um, all this media buzz about ecstasy because ecstasy was a really big component of the acid house scene. So that's when the TV stations started coming to the clubs. I don't recall that there were any TV crews at the basement of the tunnel, but there definitely was at least one or two TV crews at the world uh, there to do reports on the club kids and the acid house and ecstasy scene. Now, by the time the world opened as, you know, the home of the club kids, you were already ingrained in the, in the culture there. You were involved in it for a few years, and I'm sure people had started to know who you were. You started to be like an actual part of the, of the culture itself, not just an extra person who stopped in there once in a while, correct? I mean, you were pretty much a fixture of the scene by that time. Uh, yeah, I mean, people knew me. and I mean, I made a point to have people know me, and I made a point of standing out. So, yeah, people definitely knew who I was. I did, at that point, even at, at the World, I didn't necessarily work there. It, I think my first gig, my first nightclub gig was at the World, at the It Club. Michael Alec hired me to, to throw a party there. And uh, so, yeah, like... For the first couple of years that I was in the club kid scene, I, I wasn't actually working in the clubs or being paid to be there. How long did the did the scene stay kind of focused on the world? How long did that? Did that it didn't. It didn't seem to have stayed there very long. I I really only remember it being there for like maybe a year. Uh, in my memory, uh, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but I remember the the scene quickly moving to red zone uh, after the tunnel, after, I'm sorry, after the world. And uh, because Michael had gotten a job offer there, Michael Alec. So when he moved there, basically all the club kids moved there. And I mean, one of the reasons all the club kids moved there is because one, he was hiring us to go-go dance at the red zone. He would pay us $75 a night to go-go dance on the bar or on boxes and by the dance floor or just to be hosts. And, uh, and he would give us, you know, basically lots of free drinks. So a lot of the club kids didn't have that much money. So if, uh, if wherever Michael Alec went, the club kids would go because they knew they could get free drinks and it could possibly be paid to be there. So um, that, that's why a lot of us moved to the red zone. But the red zone was genuinely a very fun nightclub. That was a completely different scene too. That was on 54th street in, Hell's Kitchen. And at that point, Hell's Kitchen was not the trendy uh, brand that it is today. And uh, it was still kind of like a sketchy area, kind of desolate. And uh, the nightclub was located in a former ABC sound studio where the gothic soap opera Dark Shadows was uh, recorded. Oh, how appropriate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I think uh, Vincent Price might have been one of the first club kids. <laughs> well i just lo i loved dark shadows as a child so it delighted me to no end to every time i was at the tunnel to think that i was 
walking around and go-go dancing in the same environment where Barnabas Collins was, um, you know, coming out of a coffin. You know, it was so cool. Like it was a, it was a thrill for me. You mean at the red zone? Yeah. At the red zone. At the red zone. Yeah. yeah. And I, I grew up in New Jersey, just across from New York. I was about 20 minutes away uh, by train. And I remember Hell's Kitchen back in the time when I was in high school and you know, in college. Um, Hell's Kitchen was a place you did not go by yourself, even in the daytime. I mean, you right. were a bodyguard or you wanted to be in an armored car or something. Yeah, um, it, it was considered a bad neighborhood. So, of course, we know how much that's changed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now you've gone from, you know, a, an old train station up to, you know, a... a a film, a, a TV studio that must have been a huge difference in the, in the environment itself. I mean, just the, the way that. It, yeah, it was. I mean, well, it was the train station, the train tunnel to the, you know, the, the 19th century, you know, ballroom in the Lower East Side for immigrants and then to the, the former ABC sound studio. <laughs> so yeah, they were, they were very different environments, but you know, like nightclubs all kind of look the same on the inside. They have all, they've all got flashing lights and right. dance floors and bars. So a lot of times you don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily feel that different. Uh, I mean, the red zone definitely looked like a sound, a TV sound studio because it was set up that way. The, uh, the world looked like a ballroom. I mean, it was a giant chandelier on the second floor. Uh, and then, you know, the tunnel was just like, you know, a freaky train tunnel, <laughs> you know, so like you couldn't really make design that it was, it was already, it preexisted, uh, the nightclub. Uh, so yeah, they were different environments, but on the inside, I mean, you kind of felt like you were in the same type of space. Now the transition from tunnel to world to red zone from the beginning of the tunnel to the end of the red zone years. It was, we're only talking about four or five years here, right? Yeah, correct. Because it would, it would, we're basically talking 87, 88, 89, and then maybe the first half of 1990. So yeah, about three and a half or four years. So this is a pretty quick transition uh, moving from one place to the other. Did you notice a difference as you moved to new locations and, you know, Michael became more well-known and more well-connected and more people started coming into the scene did it change the the vibe, the energy? Did you see more people getting more into the costume concept and the you know the extravagance, or was there really no change? Was there really the same kind of feeling up to that point? The, yes. Well, you have to remember that in 1987 there was a tremendous um, recession and uh, a Wall Street crashed in 1987, so that caused um, like a recession in New York city. And I think throughout the country, it caused a lot of nightclubs to close. Like the wealthy people stopped spending money the way they had been in the, in the early to mid eighties. When I first moved to New York in eight, 1984, the parties in New York city were extremely lavish. Uh, you could go to parties and there would be all these celebrities and it would be two hour open bars and they were constantly serving champagne and people were dressed in really expensive clothes, designer clothes. Um, you know, you fast forward to 87, 88, and by then clubs had closed down. All the, most of the mega clubs had closed. Um, and this, the party had shifted to smaller, more intimate clubs. And you didn't necessarily see, you know, all these Wall Street bros out, you know, spending lots of money. 
So that's the milieu that the club kids emerged out of that, you know, that vacuum of lavishness and the vac, the absence of celebrities and the absence of big budgets. So um, we were like the small budget celebrities that uh, took the place of the, the big budget real celebrities. And uh, so what happened as the, as we got closer to 1990 and New York city recovered, you did see, uh, nightclubs recover. You saw the economy recover. You saw people starting to spend more money. So yeah, I noticed definitely that we were making, we were making more money. Our parties became more, as Michael Alec became more successful, his budgets became bigger. He could hire more people. Uh, as we got more publicity, people, more young people in different parts of the country found out about us and decided, Oh, let me move to New York to be with all these club kids. Cause that's what I am, you know? So, so yes, I definitely noticed that. Uh, and it had already started by 1989, 1990. Now, Michael Alley was a big part of this whole growth of the, of the club kid scene in New York City in those years. And a lot of people know him, of course, for um, the Party Monster movie and that whole image of him. But you knew him, you know, from the mid 80s into the 90s when he was really kind of a driving force in the, in the club kids scene. What do you think uh, was the reason for that? What was it about him that made it possible for him to become the king of the club kids scene and, and drive the, you know, these parties into being successful and popular? The club kids scene would not have happened without him. Uh, that's for sure. And uh, he had uh, this very, uh, magnetic and uh, electric childlike imagination. And he had, uh, he wasn't afraid to do things that might be considered taboo. Uh, I mean, he, he had psychological issues for sure. And I th- so some of the in- normal inhibitions that a, that a, a, a well-adjusted adult might have, uh, he didn't have those, you know, so he, he had no filter. He, he would think crazy thoughts and then speak his crazy thoughts or act on his crazy thoughts. So on the one hand, it made him scary. And on the other, it made him really fun and exhilarating. So that's why I think the party scene was so benefited so much from his contributions and from his uh, ability to get wealthy club owners to buy, to buy into his ideas and his promotions and um, I don't think the club owners would have done that if they hadn't all made a lot of money off of his ideas. So his ideas were very successful. And I mean, we didn't necessarily make a lot of money off of them, but the club owners did. Now, were those traits the same kind of things that attracted you to him? I mean, you were, you know, a friend, a roommate, in some respects, a, a business partner uh, working with him on some of these events. Are those the same traits that that attracted you to him as a person? Yes, he was very charismatic. He is very funny. He, I, I'm, uh, I used to be a more reserved person than I am today, and uh, and I used to be more self conscious too. And but when I was around him, I didn't feel very reserved or self conscious. He was kind of like a catalyst for my creativity, and he kind of would egg me on to do things beyond my comfort zone. And it was that ability of his to kind of push me out of my comfort zone that 
sometimes would scare me, but other times would really exhilarate me and make me feel uh, just wonderful and excited to be with him and to, you know, have him as a friend and to just buy into his ideas, no matter how crazy or scary I thought they might be. Now, to put it into some kind of perspective, these first like four years of the scene from 87 to 90, um, that was before the extreme drug use, right? That was more of a recreational drug scene and people just letting loose a little bit and partying. But there, that was before Michael really went overboard in the drug scene and, and some of the other people that, that we hear about. Correct. Well, I mean, I'm not sure how you would define extreme drug use because, you know, one person's personal consumption might be somebody else's extreme drug use. Um, What I would say is that he he was not addicted to drugs uh, um, in that time period, at least from what I could tell. And he was highly functional and very successful. And, uh, you know, he... I didn't really know him to get messy um, in that, especially in that 88 to 1990 period. He, you know, he was very ambitious and yeah, he wasn't a mess at, the, at that time. Now that same time frame, while y'all were taking your parties from the tunnel to the world, to the red zone, the limelight had been established already for quite a while as a club in, Man- in Manhattan. And it had its heyday, you know, 10 years earlier or eight years earlier, and then started to, to decline. Um, so during the late eighties, the, the limelight was kind of in trouble, right? It wasn't, it wasn't the it bar. It wasn't the place that everybody talked about. It was like, yeah, it used to be really cool. I remember going there five or 10 years ago. Um, and then somehow you and Michael and, um, some of the other people in your, in your circle connected with Peter Gation and you decided to move the, um, the club kid parties to the limelight. How did that go down? How did, how did Peter Gation become involved in that? I really can't tell you how that happened. Uh, What I can tell you is that uh, it was basically Michael Alec who met with Peter Gation. I'm not sure who approached who, but uh, it was definitely them meeting. And then uh, somehow Peter invited Michael to come do a party at the limelight and to do it on a Wednesday night. And uh, presumably he offered Wednesday night because that was probably his deadest night of the week. And, you know, he figured, you know, he needed something there. So, uh, and Wednesday was a really good night for us because at that time in New York, all the coolest parties in New York occurred on either Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Sunday nights. So um, there were never any cool parties on Fridays or Saturdays. So those are just like the, you know, the bridge and tunnel nights. And uh, so that's how that happened. And, you know, he, he was, Peter offered Michael a night there and gave him a budget to have uh, to print expensive invites and have, a lot of uh, go-go dancers and higher DJs and, uh, and it worked. I mean, we were able to, 
to get a scene going there. I mean, you know, I mean, he already, Michael already had a crowd. So there wasn't, there was no question that when he moved to the limelight, that hundreds of people would wouldn't come to the party. We knew that they would, Uh, but the limelight was an enormous nightclub. So even if you had a following of four or 500 people, that wouldn't necessarily be enough to fill the limelight. So it had to be more, we had to get more than that. And, and that was the challenge when we arrived at the limelight. So what were your thoughts when Michael first told you about moving to the limelight? I mean, you've already been in three unconventional spaces um, for his parties. And now you're moving to a fourth, much larger, um, much more infamous space, uh, formerly a church. That's this monstrous club space. What were your thoughts? Were you, were you excited? Were you concerned? Were, what did you think when he said, hey, we're going to be doing it over here? I was excited about it. Uh, although it's funny because before Disco 2000 started at the Limelight, Michael and I went to the Limelight on a Wednesday night to see what it was like. <laughs> and, and basically they had the night that we were there, they were doing women doing jello wrestling inside these big inflatable swimming pools so like they were these you know bimboy women in bikinis that were wrestling each other in jello and then there were all these sleazy men in the audience a lot of them were ultra orthodox jews wearing you know their full ultra orthodox jew regalia uh, you know the hats and the you know ear curls and the long suits and, you know, which to me was shocking because I thought, well, I thought these guys were really religious. What are they doing watching such a sleazy thing like this? Uh, and, but then I realized that they, they weren't religious. It's just a look for them. Um, so that's, that was the main audience on a Wednesday night. So I thought we're going to have to replace this with something better. And I didn't think it was going to be that heavy of a lift to replace it with something better because anything would have been better than that. Uh, but the challenge was trying to get a thousand people to come. You know, I knew that we could get a few hundred people. And, uh, but I was excited because the limelight was even then was even, I, although it had become a joke by 88 or 89, it was still legendary and iconic. And it was exciting to have the opportunity to work there. And, you know, when you start a new party, you never know if it's going to be successful. Like so many parties start in New York and they don't last more than a, a few weeks. And, and, I was involved in parties that didn't last more than one night. So it's very hit or miss. And sometimes you don't know what's going to succeed and what isn't going to. That's funny that you mentioned the jello wrestling, because around that same time frame, I had come to visit um, my cousins in Florida and they were straight. One of my cousins said, oh, let's go out to a club tonight. And we went out to this bar that he chose and they were doing uh, jello wrestling in the <laughs> bar. And I can still to this day smell that cheap imitation strawberry jello that like the whole bar smelled like strawberry jello. And it's just, it's one of those funny things you look back and you said, so somebody sat down one day and said, Hey, this is a good idea for entertainment. <laughs> and, and people bought into it for a while, but, um, but you came in and now at this time, once you moved to limelight, you became a permanent fixture of Disco 2000. You were working alongside Michael for the club. That was your job, correct? Yes. Well, one of my jobs at 
Disco 2000 was to be Claire, the Carefree Chicken. The, that was that was the mascot of the club, and uh, so my job was to wear this fake fur chicken suit and dance on the stage for two or three hours a night, and uh, it was it, it was exhausting and uh, awful, but it but fun at the same time. And I got into it. It was kind of like my drag persona, so I did that for about three years and uh and then in the daytime at some point michael hired me to like come into the club to help him in the daytime because in the daytime you would have to work the phones to get people to come to the party because back then we didn't have the internet so if you wanted to invite someone to your party you couldn't just you know press a button on facebook and send an invite to 500 people you'd actually have to pick up the phone and call 500 people 500 times (laughs) so uh it was very time consuming and he needed help. Now that, that uh, Clara costume rumor is that that was a, um, a stolen costume that somebody borrowed it from a local costume shop and never returned it. And you just decided to appropriate it for a character at limelight. Is that actually true? It is true. What happened is that Michael rented three costumes and uh, there was a chicken, there was a dog, and there was a bear. And uh, I guess the idea originally was that we were, he was going to bring them back to the costume store after a week or two weeks. But, of course, he never did. And uh, we kept them. And the, th- the problem was that the other two costumes, like we could never find anybody that had the commitment to the costume and to the concept the way I did. So um, they, those two costumes kind of fell by the wayside and because nobody would wear them. And, uh, and the funny thing is that that chicken suit became really popular and it was often, it appeared in newspapers and in magazines and on TV. So we always thought that at any moment, the costume company owner was going to come to the limelight and demand that we return the chicken suit, but nobody ever did. (laughs) Now, in keeping with your um, FIT education, you couldn't just wear that costume as is. So you had to take your fashion training and embellish it. As I recall, uh, uh, maybe the original embellishment to it was some long feather uh, eyelashes and some other accessories added onto the chicken to make it a little bit more funky. Yes, definitely. I made uh, outfits for the chicken suit. So I was basically, so this is the perversity of uh, my job at Disco 2000. Uh, I was often at Disco 2000 wearing like a club kit outfit. And then when I would have to go in the back and put on the chicken outfit. So then I had an outfit of the chicken outfit on top of my club kit outfit. And then often I would make an outfit for the chicken suit. So then I would have an outfit on top of the chicken costume. So I would essentially be wearing three layers of clothes in this really hot nightclub. Um, it was, I, I, it's a wonder I just didn't die from heat stroke. <laughs> now, so you've obviously been memorialized in, in a lot of pictures and um a lot of articles that have been written about the club kid scene. And of course, Clara has appeared uh, in many places. Not that everybody would necessarily know it was you. She doesn't look a lot like you. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I keep seeing pictures as I've been doing my research and getting ready for this interview. I keep running across different pictures of, um, 
of Clara in, in various places. And um, must be kind of interesting. What happened to the costume? Do you still have it or somebody have it? No, you know, when I was the guardian of the costume while I did, while I performed as Clara and in the, it was in the summer of 1993 that I just decided that I didn't want to work at, I didn't want to do Clara anymore. I didn't, and I didn't want to work at Disco 2000 because by then, you know, things have gotten really druggy and I didn't, I kind of wanted to down, downscale my, you know, drug use and partying because I thought it was getting out of control. So one of the steps to do that was to stop working at Disco 2000. And, uh, and after I turned in the costume, it got lost somehow. Or my, my suspicion is that it was kept, we often kept it in these black hefty garbage bags. And I'm thinking that one night somebody probably just put it in a garbage, in one of the garbage bags and left it on the floor in the club. And then like the cleaning people might've just thought it was garbage and thrown it out. So Clara is gone. Yeah. She's in a landfill somewhere. (laughs) So while you were at um, Limelight, you had the opportunity to interact with somebody who was well known in the um, New York club scene and other cities as well. Um, He owned the Limelight. He later owned also the Tunnel uh, Club ABC. Um, What else did he own? Um, He owned the Limelight in Atlanta, Petrus in Atlanta, several other clubs. And um, so a lot of people know his name, Peter Gation. What was your experience like with Peter Gation? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that it was that I particularly liked him. I mean, I didn't dislike him, but uh, in today's uh, vocabulary, I guess you might call him a boss hole. Um, I thought that he was kind of dismissive of me and other people. And, um, and maybe that's because uh, he was in the club scene and he's accustomed to a lot of dysfunctional people working for him. And uh, I'm not sure, but I, I didn't feel that he treated people very particularly respectfully. Um, so that was my interaction with him. And because of that, I didn't really like him. And then at that time, I didn't have the, the social skills that I have today, where if somebody were treating me in a, in what I considered a disrespectful or rude way, where I would just like call them out on it and ask them to stop doing that. So, you know, I didn't ask him to stop doing that. And, fa- and instead I would internalize it or just allow it to bother me. So I can't say that it was a particularly warm relationship, although I don't really have anything against him at this point, you know, that, that was a long time ago. You know, I, appreciated working at the limelight and uh, he did employ me for several years and uh, and it did help me out in, in terms of my career now, at the time that you were working at the limelight and you were performing as clara you were also involved in promoting the uh, disco 2000 events and other club kid events through a publication called Project X. And I guess at that time, um, Peter Gation was funding part of that, of that publication. Yes, he was. Um, that's one of the reasons why I you know, don't dislike him because you know, he did contribute a lot to the club kid scene and he helped uh, many of us advance our careers in different fields. 
Now, Project X had been around for a couple of years before the Limelight Connection, correct? It, like late 80s? Yes, it had, it had been started by Michael Alec and Julie Jules in the late 1980s, I think around 1987 or 88. And it was, um, that was during the time period when zines were big. And it, for people who don't know what zines were, they were often these photocopied uh, magazines that people would just make with uh, a Xerox machine and scissors <laughs> and uh and staple them together and give them out so kind that's a glorified kind of how, newsletter yeah it's like a glorified newsletter and so that's how it started out and uh, and it just got slicker yeah and that that transition happened about the same time that you started writing for project x and peter started funding project x is when it became more of a legitimate magazine you know and attracted more um, advertisers from, you know, liquor companies and clubs around the country. It became more expansive. It wasn't just a, an underground New York City, you know, club kid flyer. It was more of a club scene magazine that, that went beyond the city. Yes. I mean, that another reason to be uh, grateful to Peter Gation that he helped Project X um, take a national platform and become distributed nationally. I think at that time is when we were able to get secure a distribution deal where the magazine was uh, distributed to cities around the United States. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was his investments. You know, he, he definitely helped us uh, make the magazine better. And uh, obviously we still had a lot of work that we had to do to, to do that, but you know, without his money, it probably wouldn't have been possible. Now, once, once Project X got uh, started to get bigger, and of course, the more cities you're in and the more clubs that are advertising with you, the more exposure you're getting because all these other people are seeing it. Um, it started to, to create a little bit more, I guess, vibe even for the Disco 2000 scene and everything else that was going on that you were working on and Michael was working on. It, it gives you, gave you a little bit more exposure and credibility, I guess. Well, it definitely gave us more exposure. I don't, I don't know if it gave us more credibility, um, but yes, we, you know, it, it definitely, we definitely got lots of attention. That's uh, indisputable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was a great time to be in that situation. You know, the, um, the gay scene was kind of exploding. I remember uh, I moved to Atlanta in the early eighties and through the eighties and into the nineties, the club scene was pretty explosive. You were starting to see a lot of new clubs, uh, even a city like Atlanta, which is not huge. Um, back then had, you know, maybe 30 different gay bars you could go to, you know, 30 different outlets. And um, so it was really kind of a dynamic time for a lot of experimentation in the club world. And I'm really yeah. glad that y'all were able to, you know, kind of revive Limelight and otherwise it might've just fizzled out into nothing. And who knows if anybody would be talking about it now? Uh, it's, I mean, people would be still talking about it because that time period when the limelight first opened in the early 80s, I mean, it really was a remarkable place. And, um, you know, Peter's vision in opening a club there was, you know, remarkable. And uh, so nobody can take that away from him. 
And what I feel that we did is that we, we helped give the limelight a new life and that then, you know, basically cemented that aura of coolness that it already had and, you know, brought it to a level of, you know, I don't know, legendary, you know, status, you know, and that nobody will ever forget at this point because it's probably the most famous nightclub in New York, you know, after Studio 54. Yeah, and that's that's kind of odd because Studio 54 lasted about five and a half minutes, I think. And <laughs> yes, the limelight, right? yes, that's true. The limelight lasted much longer than Studio 54. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a great space. And, you know, it's interesting what you said about... Um, the early nineties having like a renaissance of uh, nightlife, a gay nightlife in particular. I think one of the reasons for that was if you recall that there was a tremendous trauma from the AIDS epidemic during the 19, the late 1980s. And uh, it was really uh, scary to, um, you know, to have sex in the eighties and that really hurt uh, gay nightlife. And then, you know, seeing all these gay, young gay people dying during the late eighties also put a big damper on gay nightlife. So by the early nineties, when we were beginning to see the, um, the anti-retrovirus drugs that were coming out and that were offering cure, you know, if not cures, at least treatments for HIV. uh, I think that helped bring a revival of nightlife uh, in addition to just a more widespread awareness of safer sex and how to avoid becoming infected with HIV. Yeah, and I think it may have also um, contributed to the popularity of the gay publications in general at that time frame. Because before the '80s, I knew a lot of people, you know, in the gay scene that were not really inclined to pick up a gay magazine because of the stigma associated with it or whatever. But once AIDS came along, it became a necessary evil because you needed, you wanted to see the news, you wanted to hear what was going on in your community, and those things were not being covered in the mainstream media, you know, in a in a fair way, um, as well as the nightlife scene. If you wanted to go out, you weren't going to find that information in you know the New York Times. It was going to be some some sort of underground publication or gay gay oriented magazine, whether it was uh, Project X or if it was you know, some other publication. And one thing that I'm particularly grateful for, as I've been researching all these bars that, you know, we loved and lost over the years, uh, one of the things that I kept saying to myself is, you know, I really wish we had done a better job of documenting what happened 20, 30, 40 years ago in the alternative nightlife scene than we did. Because the mainstream publications and the news stations were not doing it for us. And fortunately, Project X, in, to some extent, did help do that, did help preserve those memories. And you now have a website called projectxarchive.com, where people can go and look at, I think, almost every issue um, of Project X that was put out back in the 80s and 90s. And that's correct. So there is that archive. And um People can, anyone can look at it. I, I've actually gotten a lot of positive feedback about it from students who are interested, uh, design students who are interested in that time period. And, you know, they go through the magazines to look at what the people were wearing and how they were styling themselves. Yeah, uh, so I'm, it's definitely a time capsule. And I, I appreciate, you know, 
everybody involved in that project for doing it because I, you know, it makes my job easier. And I love looking at these old things and, and reading articles about something that happened 30 years ago in the club scene and saying, Oh, wow. You know, it's a firsthand account, not somebody telling me 40 years later, but it's, it was written right then. Um, another thing that you were particularly fortunate to, um, to have experienced at that time frame is that right there in New York City, you had a talented photographer by the name of Michael Fazakerly, who did something in New York City that was not really done much in any city that I can think of uh, at that time. And he was immersed in the club kid scene and documented photographically hundreds of people, events, outfits from that era that we would never be able to appreciate if someone like him had not been there to do it. Um, and you were part of that. You would go to his apartment and I think, it, what was it? His living room or dining room was set up like a studio. And it was I, his living room. And so you would go over before you went clubbing to his apartment and he would take out his professional equipment and lighting and whatever and photograph you in a proper magazine format, as opposed to, you know, flashing lights and hazy smoke and 80 people scrunched around you. I mean, he could get proper photographs of your outfits and, and your makeup and everything else that you were doing back then. That's correct. He was uh, essentially a staff photographer for the limelight, and he often shot portraits of people when we needed pictures of people to put on invites for the club. So that he was on retainer for that. And Michael Alec had the brilliant idea of asking him to start photographing all the club kids. So we would go to his apartment uh, before the party started and have our portraits taken. And, uh, and you're right. I don't think that, I don't know about any other photographer in New York from that time period that was doing that. There were other photographers that were coming to the nightclubs and taking photographs, but that was, those were candid shots inside the club, which are also valuable. But, um, yeah, he and he not only documented the club kids, he documented many of the drag queens from the scene because he was a staff photographer for Pansy Beat, which was this queer magazine. I also believe he shot photos for My Comrade, which is a drag magazine. So he documented the drag queens. He also shot photographs for HX magazine and Mark Berkeley. So he was able to document all the hot go-go boys from that time period. I mean, his photo collection which he has now do donated to the Stonewall Museum in um, Wilton Manors, Florida, is an amazing um, time capsule of photographs of the club scene from the early, late 80s to early 90s in New York City. I mean, it's, it, it's really a monument to uh, a lost era. And speaking of the Stonewall, um, I had Hunter Ohanian, uh, the director, executive director of Stonewall, do a uh, walkthrough video about 35 minutes introducing the Stonewall to everybody as an episode for uh, my gay archive show. I went down there a couple months ago, but I wanted to point out that you did an interview with Michael Fazakerly right there at the Stonewall. And that video is on your YouTube channel. So anybody that wants to learn about his photography and the Stonewall archives down in, in Wilson Manors in Florida and Florida, they can go right to your YouTube channel, watch the video and see you sitting in the space talking about his artwork and his photographs and about the uh, Stonewall Museum. 
That's correct. That exhibition was called Nightbirds, and uh, it is posted on my YouTube channel, which is called The Pew, P-E-E-E-W. It's a YouTube comedy show that I hosted with Michael Alec for several years. And then you got to include Michael's photographs in there. That's correct. Now, in addition to Michael documenting uh, the club kids themselves and the drag queens, it also has kind of a special place in your heart, I'm sure, because you designed many of the club kid outfits that you yourself wore, that Michael Alec wore, that several of the other club kids in your circle wore. And my and in the course of, of Michael taking these photographs, he's documented some history of your, your club kid design from the early years. Yes, thank goodness, because... Uh, if it weren't for his portraits, I would have far fewer photographs or documentation of my creative output from that time period. Uh, I must have designed a couple of hundred Club Kid costumes for Michael Alec, and I only have photographs of maybe like, I don't know, 30 or 40 of them. Um, and the crazy thing is that at that time I had a camera. I don't know why it just didn't occur to me to take more pictures, but you know, back then it was more expensive to take a picture. Every time you took a picture, you'd have to have it developed. You'd have to take it to a store. It wasn't, it's not like today where you just have a phone, you take a picture and, and it doesn't cost you anything. There's no investment of time or money in it. Uh, so uh, yes, thank goodness for Michael Pizakerly. I, I really am grateful to him for his documentation and for just taking so many fabulous pictures of me. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed they're not plastered all over your wall, but you don't have a whole wall of, of pictures of yourself back there. Um, you know, it's funny like that. Anybody would think that, I don't know, like, I don't want to look at pictures of myself. I'd rather look at pictures of other people than pictures of myself. (laughs) I'm not that, I mean, obviously I, I would say I'm a pretty vain person, but I'm not that vain that I have pictures of myself. (laughs) <laughs> up in my apartment like I don't think there's a single photo of myself anywhere in, in the apartment I mean there are there are paintings and drawings of me in my apartment that other artists have made but uh, I don't have photographs of myself on the wall <laughs> so when you started doing these uh these club kid fashions back in the 80s and early 90s um a lot of it was inspired just by you know, the kind of juvenile nature of the the people and the characters that were involved in the scene. And it was also kind of steered by the fact that you had virtually no budget and were buying um, end run fabrics, you know, remnants and things to make costumes out of. And you've continued to do that. You, to this day, some 30 odd years later, you are still involved in doing original fashion design. Well, I try the best that I can right now. I'm mostly focused on making accessories. I, uh, my main interest is making uh, bondage gear, like basically face harnesses and uh, eye patches and visors. So um, you can see that work on my Etsy store, which is called Attention Shifter. So if, um, if anybody who's curious about seeing that stuff, it's, it's there. But yeah, I still... I still like making things. I mean, I'm, I've always been a creator. I mean, even when I was a child, I was making things. So for me, designing, whether I'm sewing clothes or making, you know, these face harnesses or 
recording songs or making videos. It's, um, it's all part of a process of just making things that, uh, that I've felt compelled to do since I was a kid. And your fashion designs early on in the 80s and into the 90s were pretty extreme by most people's standards. They were not, nobody would ever confuse them for being a mainstream fashion that came out of a JCPenney store. Um, they, they always had an edginess to them. They were always kind of, um, I shouldn't say always, but frequently kind of gender bending. Um, it was almost like the club kids seemed to define what we now call non-binary because there was no concern for, oh, well, I'm making this for a guy, so it should be brown and blue and masculine looking, or I'm making this for a girl and it should be pink and yellow and really frilly. You blurred all the lines, you did whatever, and took playful juvenile fabrics and pastel colors and made a modified version of a, I don't know, of a sundress with no ass for Michael to wear to the club. Um, what was the inspiration for that? Where did you come up with those ideas to just throw caution to the wind? And, and... <laughs> Well, it was, um, I just, we were trying to, uh, you know, get attention and to shock people and, uh, and to be sexy at the same time as we were being clownish. And so it was all these, impulses you know kind of pushing me in that direction you know like I was always interested in bondage gear and I was always interested in cartoons and in Hello Kitty and in cartoons and the circus and clowns so I just took all of those interests and you know distilled them into something that could be called the club kid look and you pretty much defined that look. I mean, we see it still today, uh, remnants of it. I even see, you know, one thing that it, it has kind of evolved into um, in cities outside of New York. I'm not sure what it's like in New York, but I'm seeing a lot more um, of what we used to call drag queens that are now adapting that whole club kid look and doing whatever they want, you know, adding extreme elements to it that really are not functional, I guess, for what we would have considered drag in the seventies and eighties, but um, you're starting that influence is still around. I mean, what, what y'all were doing 30, 40 years ago is still being seen out in the clubs today. It's an incredible honor to have been able to be part of the club kids and to help to define the club kid look and the club kid aesthetic. Um, You know, and mostly I was able to do that because I designed so many outfits for Michael Alec, you know, the party monster, so um, to see, you know, the way it influenced drag and the way it influenced, you know, gender nonconforming young people uh, is very humbling. And I'm very proud of it. And speaking of Party Monster, um, a couple of years ago, you released a book called Dressing the Monster, which is all about party clubs, party clothes for the club kid killer. Um, and pretty much the whole book is donate is dedicated to talking about different looks, different costumes or fashions that you came up with, uh, mostly for Michael Alec, with a bunch of photographs in here showing a lot of those different uh, looks. 
That's right. I, I wanted to have like a um, a book that would kind of explain the the ideas behind um, the looks because I want people to understand that the club kid uh, aesthetic, at least for me and for Michael Alec, it wasn't about uh, you know a bunch of young people just getting fucked up on drugs and acting like clowns we we were thinking about art and we were thinking about fashion and we were thinking about politics and uh, we were sending messages and through our behavior and our appearance and uh, that's those were kind of the goals that I was trying to achieve with that book to you know just help people understand the the motivations behind the fashions and the inspirations for them. And for people who are not, you know, really huge fans of, of fashion history or learning about the club scene, they still have an excuse to buy your book because on page 18, you have a picture of Michael Alex's ass with uh, plastic pearls draped around it as one of your more extreme uh, outfits. I think he's just wearing a jock strap with uh with what what looks like plastic pearls yeah it was as simple as that <laughs> oh well that there were there again was our uh, low budget or low rent effort to take uh something which is the jock strap and make it feminine and uh you know re- really you know really gay and to take away its um I guess like the, it's, you know, gay masculinity, you know, like when you, when you associate for us, like the, the jockstrap represented, you know, gay culture from the eighties of, you know, like these muscle clones and people with perfectly chiseled bodies wearing just a jockstrap and looking amazing. And for us, it's like, well, let's take a jockstrap and, and put something that these gay clones would never want on their bodies, which would be pearls because it would, it would subvert their fake masculinity. So uh, that's why we did that. <laughs> if I remember correctly, you even um, kind of made a, a faux jockstrap one time by gluing feathers to Michael's penis uh, <laughs> and just putting straps across his butt cheek. So it kind of looked like a jockstrap, but it was really just feathers um, glued to his nakedness. Yeah, I'm probably the only man who hand, who handled Michael Alex's penis and testicles more than once and, and in a non-sexual way besides a medical doctor, I guess, <laughs> because <laughs> I, I did I did that multiple times, you know, gluing things onto his penis and testicles. Yeah, it was uh <laughs> Yeah, it was just part of the part of the fun. <laughs> so you were definitely pushing the envelope there and um both in the in the the types of music that you're playing, the environments that your your events were in, the fashions that you were wearing, it was all a huge statement. And part of the club kid scene that I think a lot of people have missed over the years is that there was an underlying message of like anti-establishmentism and anti-commercialism. It was like a, a almost a revolt against capitalism in some ways, um, especially from what I've read in the early days. Is, did that play into it at all? Did you feel like you were kind of snubbing your nose at at society in general and saying, hey, you know, we are who we want to be? And... 
Well, like yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think that the club kids did represent. Uh, we we were, um, I guess, an extreme parody of our consumer society because at the same time that we maybe weren't part of the mainstream, we were uh, making fun of it in different ways. And I mean, we all still would say, yeah, we want to be famous, we want to be fabulous because we did want to be fabulous, but our way of being fabulous was not the conventional way where you know, you might go to drama school and become an actor and then make, become successful in Hollywood. We, we did it a different way. And we were trying to uh, distinguish ourselves from previous generations and say, we, we're different and we're fabulous and we, you know, and look at us. And, um, you know, some people thought that it was very obnoxious and were turned off by it. Other people were amused and entertained by it. And, and I, I suppose others were just indifferent. Um, so, but I think we were successful in distinguishing ourselves because decades later, people still talk about club kids, whether it's for better or good or positive or negative. It's still a topic of discussion. And people still look at that time period with some kind of nostalgia, like, oh, if only we could have that again. Uh, so I, I suppose we were successful. I suppose so. <laughs> when you were, you know, getting involved in the in the scene and kind of dipping your toe in the club kid pool for the first time, almost thirty five years ago, um, did you ever envision that people would still be talking about it and that you would still be <laughs> um, interviewed about it thirty or thirty five years later, or did you just think it was oh this is what you know the the trend of the day? Well, I definitely thought it, we thought we were the trend of the day. So that's for sure. Uh, I didn't, I didn't necessarily imagine that uh, what would happen would happen. Uh, but it, it always was our goal. I mean, certainly my goal and Michael Alex's goal th- that the club kids would become immortal, that they would become a, a counterculture archetype, just like we had the hippies and we had the beatniks and we had punk rockers and we had um, flappers. We wanted to create an iconic silhouette and archetype that would be called the club kids. So uh, we were successful in doing that because, you know, now people say club kid and it immediately uh, draws an image in people's minds. So um, that was our goal. And so, uh, I feel like we accomplished it. I, I didn't necessarily think that, you know, 35 years later, I would still be talking about it, but, um, but I'm glad to be talking about it. I'm glad it, we were able to um, cement that image in the popular consciousness. And I'm glad you did too. Um, and it was great talking to you about some of these club memories going back 30, 35 years, learning about, the way the kind of whole scene evolved and not looking at it through, you know, the Hollywood filter of what they want to focus on to make it, you know, popular or dramatic or whatever, but actually talk about what it was like from a firsthand experience. Now I understand that even today you still go out clubbing and you still express your own personal sense of style with accessories and um, different fashion items that are either designed by you or embellished by you some way, you still embrace that the soul of what you were doing 30 years ago. 
I do. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, on social media, there's lots of, you know, hateful people. So I will get messages from people telling me that I need to move on or, uh, you know, get a life or whatever. But uh, for me, it was, it's something that I've always done. I've done it since I was a teenager and I love doing it. And uh, I love uh, creating, you know, stunning looks and looks that you won't forget. I, I love walking into a nightclub and being the most flamboyant person in the club. I mean, who, I mean, maybe not everybody wants to be that, but I love doing that. So um, I don't feel that there's any reason to stop doing that. And uh, you do it well. I saw the picture. Uh, we're going to put it up in the video, but I saw the picture of you from uh, New Year's Eve just a couple weeks ago. And uh, that's definitely a look that you won't forget. I mean, you walk in, uh, you know, I tried. Yeah. I mean, it's 2020 and, uh, or 2022 actually. And, uh, I'm actually turning 60 this year. So I want to enter my sixties looking fabulous. So <laughs> you're doing a great job of it. <laughs> Thank <And> you. <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time to talk about these clubs and hopefully we'll get to do another segment, um, you know, down the road a month or two from now and talk about some of the more current bars that you've been going to and what's going on in the scene you know, the underground scene in New York City and, and the surrounding boroughs. Um, so thank you for, for spending some time with us today. Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to do that, especially once the pandemic is over. When we go back to normal, there'll be lots to talk about. All right, then. Well, thank All right, you. Take care. Have a great evening. All right. Take care. That concludes another episode of the Gay Archive Show. For more information about this episode or to find more episodes, visit gaybarchives.com.